At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Tonight we have the third of the trio of uh, experts speaking at the ESPD 55, which is a conference that's being held next month in the beautiful place of Windborne in Dorset. And we'll tell you more about that as we go through. But for any of you interested in plants and their products and the human mind, it's absolutely the conference to be logging into because it's going to be communicated, broadcast across the world by Zoom. So today's guest is Mark Plotkin, who is, as he tells me, a lapsed herpetologist. And I guess <laughs> you won't know what that is, so I'll let him explain. He's also got this most remarkable email handle of at Amazon team. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Thanks for the introduction. By a lapsed herpetologist, I should point out that as a kid, I grew up in New Orleans, which is surrounded by swamps, and I was always chasing reptiles and amphibians. I dropped out of college at the age of 18 and went to work at a natural history museum at Harvard in the herpetology department, pursuing my passion about reptiles and amphibians. But I took a night school course called the Botany and Chemistry of Hallucinogenic Plants. And this being the end of the 60s, in a cultural sense at least, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of working with magical plants, mind-altering plants, rainforest settings, was even more appealing. So I became an ethnobotanist, a scientist who studies the use of medicinal and hallucinogenic plants by indigenous peoples. Well, I guess, therefore, from the, uh, the title of your, of your email and the fact that you've written books like The Plants of the Gods, you must have spent a fair bit of time in the Amazon, have you? Well, I've been working in and on the Amazon for the better part of four decades. And as an ethnobotanist, I'm particularly interested in these healing plants, mind-altering and otherwise. But about a year ago, I launched a podcast called Plants of the Gods to focus on this, to, to sort of get the word out. There's a lot of podcasts on hallucinogens, entheogens, but I would say that the quality varies. And because I'm a scientist, uh, first and foremost, working with indigenous peoples, I would say that I feel my perspective complements out of a lot of other podcasts. And so the point was to get out scientifically accurate information on mind-altering plants. And when I say mind-altering plants, I'm not just talking about cannabis or psilocybin and mushrooms, fungi, but also wine. I mean, wine has been as important to the evolution and development of human culture as any other plant other than corn and the uh, cereal grasses. So that's the point I'm trying to make, that there's a science that undergirds this indigenous wisdom, and it's not the microchip or the medicine man in terms of the future of therapeutics. It's both working together. Yes, it's interesting. Not many people talk about alcohol or wine as, the, as having sort of positive effects, but you can clearly make a strong case that it's been with humans ever since humans have had social culture, couldn't you? Well, you know, Dave, I was looking for a, a proper term, which I ended up having to coin because it didn't exist, and which was 
how we use these mind-altering plants and fungi and frogs to enhance creativity, to give us new ideas. Right. And so the term that I came up with, which is actually developed by a filmmaker named Abigail Wright, is ideogen. We know that hallucinogens generate hallucinations. We know that entheogens generate the feeling of the god or gods within. But there was nothing to talk about the effect on creativity. And of course, all of us who study this field know that Kerry Mullis, the inventor of the polymerase chain reaction, came up with this after an LSD trip. And of course, this is not mm. to say that, you know, the more you trip out, the smarter you are, the more ideas you have. That's absolutely not true. But it is to point out that mind-altering substances, whether it's ayahuasca or whether it's wine, can have a positive impact as well. I mean, remember, it was the Roman historian Tacitus who said, no poem was ever written by a drinker of water. <laughs> so I think that the idea that wine is certainly not part of this panoply, this, this treasure chest of mind-altering substances is an oversight. And in fact, in the Plants of the Gods podcast, the latest episode that I just laid down was on absinthe. Okay, if you look at the Belle Epoque in France in the 1890s, all these guys were tripping out on, on absinthe. Verlaine, uh, Rimbaud, Jarry. Yeah. Uh, you even had a few Brits coming across the channel like Oscar Wilde and drinking way too much of the stuff. So I see this as all part of the same continuum. Do you think absinthe does have something extra in it? Whatever it is, it gives it this, this green mystique. This is a big debate. The proposition is that it has a compound in it called thujone, T-H-U-J-O-N-E, and that mm -hmm. this is mind-altering and addictive. And the scientific studies I've read on this uh, don't convince me that this is what they were being addicted to. It was just drinking this stuff, which was what we would call in the, in the South where I grew up, white lightning or moonshine. I mean, some absinthe concoctions are 90% alcohol. So I think these guys were just hardcore yeah. Right. Uh, alcoholics. And, and the idea that Thuhon was, you know, corroding their minds. There was a comedian named Kit, Chris Rush when I was in college, and he said, you know, they're giving these mice hashish, and they don't run on the wheel. But if you look at the math, that the hashish they're consuming is the size of a table. He said, give me a piece of hashish the size of the table, and I won't run on the damn wheel either. <laughs> right. Well, I'm fascinated by the the idea of developing that alcohol was the brewing of alcohol helped stabilize cultures in the in the Near East, right. and also may have been part of bringing cultures together, coming people coming together on a regular basis, maybe annually, to celebrate and using alcohol to celebrate. And I'm just wondering whether you thought other drugs would also serve that kind of role of bonding rather than simply altering how you feel and think. I definitely do, and if you been through as many ayahuasca ceremonies in the Amazon as I have, and I hope you haven't. It really is a bonding experience, uh, typically with members of the tribe or members of the community, because we're going to be very popular with peasants, not just indigenous peoples. So yeah, I think it's a bonding experience. And, and this is one of the things we want to talk about at this upcoming conference, ESPD 55, organized by our friend Dennis McKenna. And that is that, you know, our understanding of the role uh, the healing potential of these plants and fungi and frogs is just beginning to be appreciated in the way that it should. But there's a flip side to this, and that is that the abuse and overuse of these compounds can have a very deleterious effect. It's it, They're like scalpels, okay? They can heal you, they can hurt you. So this whole idea that if you just drink more absinthe, you're going to produce for whom the yeah. bell tolls uh, <laughs> is, is obviously not true. And, you know, there, there's something else that's going to be on the agenda at this conference 
uh, called the Stone to Ape Theory, which was created by Dennis's late brother, Terrence McKenna, where he said, you know, 100,000 years ago, when primates turned into humans, all of a sudden their brains got bigger, all of a sudden they created art, all of a sudden they created language, was tied to our ancestors' consumption of hallucinogenic fungi. And there's a competing theory, which I actually think is a complementary theory, which is called the drunken monkey hypothesis, which is that our primate ancestors came down from the trees to eat the ripest fruits, which had fallen on the forest floor, which had the most sugar, but some of them fermented and had alcohol in them. So was it alcohol or psilocybin that made us who we are? I like to think it's both. Yes, but of course, when I teach on the history of psychedelics, and you may well correct me on this, but I'm going to tell you what I teach. I show them a picture of this Greek vase with the other, you know, a god partaking of ergot fungus and wine simultaneously as part of these Eleusinian mysteries, which it seems to have had enormous power in activating the Greek imagination and underpinning or facilitating the the rapid evolution of kind of, of, of very high culture in Greece. Is that a terrible hypothesis, do you think? Yeah, I do. And I think this is a, a particularly interesting conundrum because on the one hand, I do think a lot of these compounds were combined. I wrote an article on the ethnobotany, the ethnomedicine of wine in the ancient world, which I, I can send to you if you remind me, you can put it in the show notes. Yes. Uh, that traced the impact of wine on the development of human culture in the ancient Mediterranean. And as you see that wine was drunken, not only because it was wine, but it was very good at dissolving these alkaloids and other plant compounds into it. So was wine, you know, for enjoyment or was wine for medicine? And the obvious answer, it was both. The flip side of this is you get these people now who are setting up these, I mean, I call them neo-ceremonies and even real ceremonies, where they're drinking ayahuasca and smoking cannabis and taking frog slime. This is, to me, beyond the pale. You know, the idea that, well, if something's good for you, you just take more of it. Or if something's good for you, let's combine it with something else that's good for you, and it's going to be better for you. I think this is very dangerous. Yes. Well, we've had the old example of, of tourists, ayahuasca tourists, which you know, certainly come into harm with, I think, scopolamine being used as well to sort of magnify or intensify or somehow distort the hallucinations as they try to achieve the, uh, see the serpents or whatever, the panthers they're trying to see, which uh, isn't not necessarily something that most people do get from ayahuasca ceremonies, but people definitely seek it. Have you come across that? Well, the whole scopolamine story is worth a, an episode or a book in itself. And, you know, here is one of the most ancient medicines uh, that our species has used, and we're still finding new uses for it, and we're still using it for uh, previously unforeseen purposes like promotion sickness. You know, that wasn't a problem 500 years ago. Right? No, no. <laughs> Yeah. But there's a downside, like you said, which is this stuff can kill you. You know, my mentor, Richard Schultes, said that the tropane alkaloids in the Solanaceae, which, of course, is the family of, of these scopolamine alkaloids primarily, is very frightening, very dangerous. And that people who think, oh, okay, well, it's, it's from a plant, so it can't hurt you, should know better. Uh, yes, that's quite true. <laughs> yeah, nature can be healing, but it can also be pretty. So let's go back to you. You know, you wander into this lecture from Schultes and he's telling you about, well, psychedelics, things would never already at that point in 69 been banned in America. And you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating. So then what did you do? You know, the drug war was, was just heating up yeah. under Richard Nixon. 
And it's my belief and the belief of many people, as you know, that this is really more about racism and suppression of minorities than any real danger to the public. I mean, clearly, psychedelics can be very dangerous and very harmful and lethal. But uh, hey, how about tobacco and alcohol? Okay. You know, I did an episode in the Plants of the Gods podcast where I I talked about uh, the comparison of cannabis with alcohol. And, you know, some people would say that if you give four guys all the cannabis they want, they'll fall asleep. If you give them all the alcohol they want, they'll go tearing down the interstate at, you know, 150 kilometers an hour, which is more dangerous. There's another saying, if you give four guys hashish, they'll start a band. If you give four guys alcohol, they'll start a fight. Yeah, yes, absolutely, yes. I was reading the other day about commentary on Vikings, and I think there was the very famous Viking, Eric the Red, I think. And it said his greatest commendation, it was Eric never killed any of his friends when he was drunk. <laughs> I really summed up the excess yeah. What a commendation. Mm. But what did you actually do? Come on, Mark. You know, so you're there, you're, you're doing your undergraduate course, you're doing this evening course, and then you know, tell us the next steps in your career to, towards the Amazon. Well, I was working in the museum, and I went on a, an expedition to Central and South America, and I just fell in love with it, you know? And I could see that plants were essentially a, a means of communication. You know, the outside world tends to go into these indigenous areas and tell them what to do and play the great white explorer and play Tarzan and stuff like this. But when you talk to them about plants, clearly they know more than you do. And the fact that I immediately was putting myself in essentially a subservient position, wanting to learn from them, rather than telling them they had to put pants on and go to church and worship Jesus Christ and all this other stuff, that was a real bonding experience. And the more I did it, the more I loved it. And so, you know, when you're working with these shamanic cultures, the ones that use things like ayahuasca in the Northwest Amazon or magic mushrooms in Southern Mexico, it's part of the job, you know? If you just show up waving a bunch of money around and say, I want to do this, I want to do this, it's a very different dynamic than taking your time, meeting the people, living with the people, eating with the people, and they're saying, we're having a a velada tonight, which is a magic mushroom ceremony, and we'd like you to participate. Well, of course you, you participate. It's an honor, right? And again, this creates a bond that you don't get just showing up with your plant press and say, okay, fork over the cure for diabetes. <laughs> yes. So you you were funded, essentially, you know, become an indigenous person. You be, you know, you went there and you lived there. What were you doing? Were you writing books or were you doing research on I mean, who was funding it? How, how did it all pull together? Well, here's where I parted ways with some ethnobotanists, which is I quickly saw how fast the information was disappearing, not only because the forest was disappearing, but the cultures were disappearing. And even if the cultures weren't disappearing, they were being crushed by missionary activity, fundamentalist missionaries telling them, don't use plants for medicine, uh, don't worship the forest spirits, do it our way. They were still doing that? Yes. There are fundamentalist missionaries, as we sit here, uh, trying to get into the few remaining uncontacted tribes in the Amazon to screw them, basically. It still goes on. And so I realized that a greater challenge than just writing all this stuff down was finding ways in partnership with the indigenous colleagues to protect the forest and protect the culture. And that was the birth of the Shaman's Apprentice program. And my first book, in fact, was called Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice. And it just sort of charted this path of realizing, hey, it's not about finding a cure for cancer. It's about making sure the forest and the cultures can survive. And if they want to teach us the cure for cancer 
or, or don't want to teach us, but that should be up to them. And so this became what I call, what we call biocultural conservation, not protecting the rainforest or the culture. It's trying to do both. And again, I want to emphasize it's not white guys like you or me going down there and telling the Brazilians what to do or telling the Anamami what to do. It's working in partnership with them. It's empowering them to take control of their own cultural environmental destiny. And that, like I told the chief of one tribe that I work with, I said, look, we're not driving the car here. We'll ride shotgun. We'll sit next to you and, and read the map. But ultimately, these decisions have to be yours. But I'm here to help you make informed decisions, not, you know, the first guy that shows up waving money in your face. He's, he might not be your friend. He probably isn't. But you have to decide. By that time, was there the sense that they were feeling threatened, that they were beginning to see this millennia of traditional understanding being eroded by logging in as well as missionaries? Look, modernity in one form or another has been in the Amazon since Oriana's voyage in 1511, okay? So it's not like there were 400 uncontacted tribes when I got there, and I, and I work with many of them. I don't work with uncontacted tribes. We don't want to contact uncontacted tribes, but we think they should be left alone. But the groups that I've worked with range from those that have been, you know, thoroughly missionized to groups where the missionaries are trying to get in and, and the indigenous peoples trying to figure whether they should let them in. And so, you know, we're guys like us who want them to know that there's great things in the outside world. Okay, polio vaccine, mm -hmm. COVID vaccine, but there's many bad things as well. So you need to understand that dealing with the outside world is, is sort of a buffet and you should decide what you want and what you don't want, and here's why. I mean, these guys don't have poverty. Nobody goes hungry. They don't have homelessness. Nobody sleeps in the open, okay? So don't get the impression that because some missionary or some soldier or some conservationist shows up and says, hey, uh, let me take your picture and I'll give you an iPad, that this is always a good thing. There was a great cartoon in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago where this group of anthropologists show up in this indigenous village in the Amazon with a, with a basket full of iPads and iPhones, and they're saying, we're here to give you technology. We'll be back in a month with antidepressants. <laughs> yes, it's true. But that actually get, touches on a question that you'd raised in my mind just a, a few minutes earlier. So we talked about how the history of humanity, right? drugs have had, a, had important roles, and they've had roles that have generally been positive, facilitating creativity or... or togetherness, etc. And then modern life, somehow we've lost the value, those rather subtle values, and it's all become more about self and Moorishness. And did you just think that's because everything's become commercial, or do you think that we've actually lost part of our sort of spiritual direction? Well, as you know, that's not an easy question to answer. First of all, you know, Timothy Leary talked about set and setting. Okay, but he left out the most important S, which is shaman, all right? So this idea that all of a sudden, you know, psilocybin's become widely available, I just refuse to believe that some guy who studied this for a month in medical school is going to know all the facets of this uh, compared to a shaman who's been taking it and using it and giving it for 60 years. So it's not an either-or situation. And this whole idea of context, when you take these mind-altering substances, in my experience, in Central America, South America, it's part of a culture, it's part of a ritual, it's part of a ceremony. And I think when you see these sort of neo-shamanic types trying to create ceremonies, 
it, there's an understanding there that there's a context missing, that there's a connection missing. And, you know, these types of traditional uses of traditional hallucinogens are not just about alkaloids, okay? And that when you take it out of the forest, when you take it away from the culture, what are you leaving behind? What are you losing? And let's face it. I mean, an alkaloid is an alkaloid is an alkaloid. It doesn't matter whether it's in the Amazon or whether it's in the herbarium at Kew. It's the same chemical. But how is it used? How is it prepared? What are the admixtures? What are the chants? You know, one of the things that the shamans are big on, at least the guys that I've had the honor and privilege of working with, is integration, right? I think any of us who have had the experience of taking these mind-altering substances, two days later, we'll have some incredible realization. But how do you deal with it? Sometimes it's crystal clear. It's like, how? Oh, what did that mean? And so living in a, in a village or in a hut with a shaman, you then go to her, go to him and say, you know, I just saw X, and I don't know what that means. And usually in my experience, like, oh, well, what that is is, you know, the ghost of your mother, whatever, 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 things that may not make sense to a Westerner, Western scientist, but time and time again, I've had stuff explained to me that may not have made sense, but after a while it did, if you follow me. So I, I want to make clear that we're looking at a future where, yes, these drugs or these synthetic or semi-synthetic versions of these drugs will be more widely available, and that's a good thing. But I do not think that we can write off the jungle or the shaman because we're losing something. It's again, it's the microchip and the medicine man. It's not either or. And I think we need a bit more humility in Western science and medicine than thinking, okay, I've got this compound. So, you know, now I've, I've mastered it. Not true. Yeah, well, that raises a number of questions. I'll take them one by one. But let's, okay. let's talk about what you might call ayahuasca tourism. Tell me about your thoughts. You must, this must be quite important in how you're dealing with conservation in the Amazon. How do you think we should deal with that? The obvious person to quote here is your countryman, Charles Dickens, right? It's the best oh. of times and the worst of times. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, guys like us who've been saying for decades that these shamanic medicines have great potential and may be able to cure, in some instances, incurable diseases. Well, that's true. Okay. On the other hand, the over-commercialization and the lack of controls has led to some deaths. And I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And one of the most poignant and insightful parts of it, in my opinion, was him pointing out that many of these people that go down to the Amazon, that go down to Peru in search of ayahuasca healing, are emotionally uh, troubled, which is why they're going there, because Western medicine is not very good at curing some forms of mental illness or emotional problems. But these are the people that are held together with scotch tape in some cases, and they can come apart. And the idea of going to a remote place, not surrounded by people you know and trust, not really speaking the language that the locals do, hallucinogens, money, darkness, that's a combustible combination in some instances. So on the one hand, I'm cheered by the growth and interest. On the other hand, I'm, I'm worried and concerned about the abuse. And there are many people that go down there and do get cured. A lot of soldiers in particular, PTSD seems to respond well to this in, in many, but not all instances, obviously. But I just worry about people, particularly women, going into these places. And there's definitely some bad actors. I mean, you know, look, that's true of shamans. That's true of physicians, right? But at least with physicians, there's systems in place and there, there's some control. So I'd like to hear your thoughts, Dave, because you've thought yeah. about this. Well, 
I'll come on to that in a second, but I, let's close this particular theme. But but what about for the native peoples? I mean, is this tourism good or bad? Okay, it's going to be good and bad, but how best to organ orchestrate it so it doesn't destroy the sort of you know, the very thing it was trying to achieve? Well, I'm glad that this is becoming more available. I'm, I'm worried that it's becoming too available, if you follow me. Yeah. Yes, that's what I mean. We definitely need better controls in place. Yes, it's, well, we, you know, we're all conscious of what happened when Washington went to, to find the mushroom lady in the, and then told her the world, you know, I mean, that, that was a horrible example of Western, that's the point you're making about Western money can, can be extremely distorting and, and damaging. And I mean, what it did, it, it eroded the very thing people were hoping to, to celebrate and to achieve. Yeah. yeah, there's a way to get this right, which is obvious, which is, you want shamans to be a, a recognized and valued profession. You want people to, to earn money from perpetuating their culture and their healing system. You want this to be available to people who are not responding well to Western treatment. But, you know, it's a little like peace in the Middle East. You know, we know what the outlines are. It's just the devil is in the details. So there's a very positive case here. But, you know, this is an aspirational goal. and we're not anywhere near reaching the way I think you and I and probably your listeners would like to see it done. And is your conservation organization, is, is that part of what you're doing or, or are you more focused on looking at Newport? Yes. That's, I mean, that's my day job. I run an organization called the Amazon conservation team, amazonteam.org. And our job is biocultural conservation, which is helping indigenous peoples protect their forests, their culture, uh, their rivers. And we are the only organization that was set up specifically to do this across the Amazon. We have had the honor and privilege of partnering with over 100 groups, primarily in Amazonia, uh, primarily in the Northeast Amazon, centered in Suriname, formerly Dutch Guiana, in Colombia. But we also working in Brazil. We're also working in Peru. And one of our signature efforts is ethnographic mapping, where we train our indigenous partners how to use GPSs. Okay. So it's a way to introduce technology in a culturally sensitive way and then turn it loose and say, okay, what else can you do with that or with a, a iPad or a notebook? They begin regarding recording grandfather's uh, stories about the legends of why this waterfall has a certain name. We've done this now with over 100 tribes. And so, again, it's, it's about empowering these people rather than going in there making a map and saying, here you go. In many cases, we're able to bring in the government as a partner which creates a very powerful uh, group of allies that most of these indigenous peoples did not have prior to these types of projects. No, well, that's good that you're getting the uh, governments. I mean, is Bolsonaro engaged or is that still a big challenge? Well, another thing I'd, I'd like to suggest that some of the people listening in uh, look at in, on our website is the life and times of Richard Schultes. Richard Schultes was my mentor. He's often been called the father of ethnobotany. He went to Oklahoma in the late 30s and did some of the seminal studies of peyote. Then he went to Oaxaca in the late 30s and did the original studies of the magic mushroom and then went to the Amazon and, and found ayahuasca. Now, of course, he always said, I didn't find anything. My indigenous teachers taught it to me or showed it to me. But imagine that by the age of 26, he'd essentially brought mescaline and peyote and psilocybin and magic mushrooms to the outside world. That's an achievement unlikely to be equaled by anybody. Never been equaled, no. Yeah. So this is a wonderful living, breathing document 
that includes everything from Schulte's field notebooks to some of the original pictures. And, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is breathe life into the British natural history tradition. You know, guys like Richard Spruce, who did the first collection of ayahuasca, people like Alfred Russell Wallace, you know, they were pioneers in this type of tropical research. But for a 21st century audience, particularly for a young audience, it's got to have a, a strong tech component to be gripping. And that's what we tried to achieve with this storybook approach. We've also done this to document gold mining in Suriname. We've also done this uh, to tell the life story of the Maroons. These are descendants of escaped slaves in the Amazon mm -hmm. who maintain a West African tribal lifestyle. So there's a lot of cool stuff there. You're a charity, are you? You're funded by donations or as well as government? I mean, how, how do you survive? Yep. We're a public charity. Uh, you can donate on our website, amazonteam.org. But most of our donations are from private individuals and family foundations. We take very little corporate money. We're really quite snobby in, in that way. We, it's very easy for an environmental group to get money, raise money from environmental-destroying corporations. We don't do that. And this is not to say that we're anti-corporate. We're not. This is not to say we're anti-business. We're not. We're just very snooty about who we take money from. And so our lifeblood is individuals and family foundations who want to make a difference. There's a lot of interest now in working with indigenous peoples. You know, this is our core competence. So through podcasts, some publications and things like that, films, we get the word out. You know, we, 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 there's a terrible thing in the U.S. here where you give a, a couple of bucks to a charity. Next thing you know, they're calling you up at dinner time and asking you for more money, bombarding you with direct mail, selling your name to other charities. We don't do that. How long have you been going? 26 years. And a measure of our success is on a really uh, medium-sized budget between 6 and $8 million a year. We have mapped, managed, and improved protection of over 100 million acres of ancestral rainforest. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. Well, you know, long may it continue. I hope you've got a good succession plan in place, Mark. Yeah. I mean, the good news is that all these other organizations, better-known organizations, are realizing the importance of indigenous wisdom, indigenous stewardship of rainforest. The bad news is there's a lot of money there, and money and not-for-profit charitable activities can be a combustible mix, much like ayahuasca and, and mental illness. And so I'm, I'm a little worried that there's a lot of money chasing too few solutions, and it's, it's certainly complicated our work in, in a lot of cases. So I welcome other organizations to the effort, but, you know, going into indigenous villages, just throwing money around it can be deleterious. And I know that sounds sort of condescending, perhaps, or a little too idealistic. But, hey, I've been doing this a long time, and that's what I've seen. Well, I don't suppose there are many people, if any, have got the same kind of knowledge and experience that you have. So we should be listening to you. <laughs> I'm in a unique position because I've been doing this so long. I mean, I'm, I'm 66 now, and I've been doing this since I was 19. And one of the lessons I've learned is that it takes time to make friends. And that, that could be in a pub in the UK, that can be in the Amazon. So the idea that you just show up in an indigenous village with a bunch of money and become their friends, and it doesn't work that way. And so by virtue of the fact that I've worked with some of these, I've been working with some of these shamans 38 years, okay, that's a bond you can't create in a hurry. And again, this is a competitive advantage of ours. But you know, when I say competitive advantage, we don't want to compete with other organizations, okay? We want everybody to working towards the same goal to be collaborating, if not collaborating, uh, complementing each other. 
And unfortunately, uh, not unlike the business world, you see a lot of competition in a place, in other words, the, the not-for-profit world, where I don't think it's healthy. No. Rick, do you think there's any way in which we could, the Western world, having now understood the power of ayahuasca, and now there are companies that are taking DMT and turning it into medicines, is there some way in which we could get an appropriate level of, sort of recompense for the people that just discovered it? You know, this is a big question now, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that, because this whole issue of intellectual property rights and reciprocity boils down to a, a very simple concept, which is good manners. <laughs> these people are helping you. These people are, are giving you gifts that are making your company a, a billion dollars. These people are curing your incurable illness. Shouldn't they be benefiting at least as much? And of course they should. Again, the devil is in the details. I mean, I'll give you an example. My late friend, Lauren McIntyre, was exploring the, the Brazil-Peru border in 1969, and he was rescued or captured, depending on whose version of events you believe, uh, by a group called the Matzes, also known as the Mayaruna. And they introduced him to the magic frog. This is the green monkey frog, which has this highly hallucinogenic uh, compound, which was totally unknown in, in the outside world. Okay, well, now... The stuff's available on the internet. Now people are, are raising this frog in captivity. So if you want to create a, a company to benefit the people, who do you give the money to? I mean, th there's more than one village of Matzes. And in fact, there's some people who say the Matzes are in Brazil and Peru. So do you give it to the Peruvian government? Do you give it to the Brazilian government? Do you give it to the tribe of Matzes, that, that the sub-tribe of Matzes that taught Lauren and not to the other? How do you do this? I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. We should have done it. But these are issues they better tackled at the outset when you're, you know, doing an agreement with an indigenous group. Let's talk about what you guys need, how we can help you. Let's make a keystone payment. You know, let's give you some money up front for education or protecting your borders or COVID vaccines or whatever, rather than, oh, oh all of a sudden, you know, psilocybin's worth a billion dollars. Now what do we do? Yeah, I suppose it's something maybe the United Nations should think about having a division to deal with. It's definitely an international problem. I don't know if they do, but that would be seem to come under their remit, perhaps um, more. You know, you do have an international organisation that is is about in part helping spread more equity across the across the globe. But I don't know whether there's any how you'd set that up even. But but it, you know, I, I guess it's well, we'll just keep that on the agenda for the time being. Um, what about the other side of the coin then, when you've got problems, you know, like the cocaine trade and what impact has that had on your work? Well, the cocaine trade makes our work very dangerous in the Colombian Amazon in particular, because you have these narcos and there's a real environmental cost that a lot of people don't appreciate because there's a lot of nasty chemicals involved in creating cocaine from coca. So yes, that is really an evil that is underappreciated in the conservation community, the outside world. But, you know, I remain a great friend of coca. Coca could be the world's greatest diet drug. It's the world's greatest stimulant in its traditional form. It's not addictive. So, again, it gets back to this idea of the scalpel that can help or hurt you. So, if there's some way to control this trade that benefits indigenous peoples, peasant people, uh, taxes going into hospitals and schools, this could be a tremendous thing. And, I mean, there's a perfect analogy here, Dave, and that is cannabis. Okay, cannabis was the evil weed uh, 10 years ago, 
Now there's a lot of people making a lot of money on this, and more importantly, a lot of money going into hospitals and schools through taxation. So there's a, a real upside to getting this right, and nobody can deny the addictive nature of cocaine, uh, but nobody can deny the addictive nature of alcohol or tobacco. So we're in this funny mosaic where we, we're living with worst-case scenarios and we're living with best-case scenarios. And the question is, how do you, how do you learn from the mistakes made and, and chart a path forward, which benefits all of us? I mean, I wish I had coca tea every morning. It's better for you than coffee. You know, I wish I had coca to chew all day long in my work. It's better for you than coffee. It's a better stimulant, uh, easier on your digestive system. But I don't because of all the terrible problems and all these wacky laws. And, you know, I mean, any student of, of human culture like you and I knows how good we are at screwing up a good thing. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> if you're teaching a course on psychedelics, uh, maybe you should put that over the, the door when the students come in for the first class. That's a good thing. There. That's a good, very good point. I guess we are making progress. I mean, the fact that you've got a podcast on those citizens and there are many others, that's something you, I guess, would have been very much frowned upon 20, 30 years ago. I think, I think the fear and the stigma is beginning to lift. Would you agree? I mean, I agree with you. I think we're making great progress. I'm, I'm astonished at the progress we've made in the last couple of years. And the good, here's proof of that, okay? The ethnopharmacological search for new psych, psychedelic drugs was in 1967. Okay, it took 50 years to revisit that concept and that conference. And we looked at all the new things that were had come to the fore since then. Uh, Kratom, you know, the anti-addiction drug from Southeast Asia. Iboga, the anti-addiction drug from West Africa. Uh, medicinal frogs uh, and several others. But now we're having the conference five years later instead of 50 years later because there's so much happening. And, you know, it's kind of like drinking out of a fire hydrant would be the, the most yeah, apt yeah. analogy. When you see the, the, just the cascade of, of information. And, you know, there's an interesting angle to this whole ESPD 55 conference, which is in, in England this month. And that is this. The original conference was held in San Francisco in 1967. And if you say to the average American, San Francisco 1967 hallucinogens, they're saying, oh, of course, the summer of love, which was a bunch of hippies uh, running around in tie-dyed stuff, uh, having a ball, literally. But actually, more importantly, from our perspective, was the ESPD, the meeting that was in San Francisco in 1967, to talk about the therapeutic uses of hallucinogens. Now, at the time, I'm sure most of these scientists were looked as sort of fringe nuts, okay? So here we are. I mean, look at all the number of podcasts out there on hallucinogens. Look at all the articles on spiritual experiences and hallucinogens. Look at all the scientific papers on the treatment of addiction using hallucinogens. So it's a, it's a very exciting time, but how do you move forward in a sane, logical way, which benefits the most people, starting with the people who taught us these plants and fungi, uh, starting with the ecosystems that yielded these plants and fungi, and ultimately, how do you help the biggest number of people in the UK, in the US, and around the world? Because these needs for new and effective treatments for PTSD, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, end of life, uh, anxiety, and terminal cancer patients, these are doors opening up every day with these 
hallucinogenic principles. And I just want to finish this very long answer with another important point, and that is that the use of these hallucinogens may not be for hallucinogenic purpose. There's a guy at LSU Medical School in New Orleans, my hometown, who's looking at the treatment of asthma using microdoses of hallucinogenic principles because it opens the airways. So it's not just all about tuning in, a turning on, and dropping out. There are other therapeutic uses that are being discovered as we speak. No, that's one of the uh, more remarkable uh, sort of uh, unexpected spin-offs of this. But before we finish, let me just go back to a question that uh, we sort of sparked a while back, and that's the role of the shaman. And because you will be aware, probably, as I guess most of the our listeners will be, that you know there are some companies developing or trying to develop non-psychedelic psychedelics, and there are others who are are interested in the idea that you could have a maybe an antidepressant effect without bothering with integration or any kind of interpretation or, or support. And I, I'd be intrigued to have your take on those. You know, I used to give a lot of lectures in, in universities prior to the pandemic. And one question I would get at, at the end of almost every lecture would be these, you know, 19-year-old kids who would say, well, I want to study ethnobotany. I think it's incredibly cool, but there's no jobs, you know. And I point out that I'm the post-World War II generation, and my parents' generation, my dad's generation was, you know, you came from World War II, you got a job in a corporation, you worked there for 40 years, you retired at 65, you got a watch and a pension. Okay, that doesn't exist anymore for the most part, and that there's a lot of uncertainty out there and will continue to be so as the world is changing so fast. So if you want a guaranteed job coming out of college, I suggest you go into tattoo removal. <laughs> That's going to be really big amongst your generation when they're my age. Number two is psychedelics. Now, there's a great need for psychedelic guides. I am often asked, what's the difference between taking mushrooms with a, a, a female shaman in Oaxaca and taking it with a guide in Washington, D.C.? And the honest answer is, I don't know because I've never done it with a guide, because I can't find one. Okay, there's just not enough to go around. And this is what we need. And the shorter answer to your question is we don't need guides versus shamans. We need both. And a perfect example, which I think will speak to many of your listeners, is that of microdosing. Okay, I've done microdosing. I like it. I don't really feel the need to have a guide uh, holding my hand or helping me integrate the stuff as much as I do when I take ayahuasca in a hammock in the Amazon, and I'm traveling to the ninth dimension with the goddess of the river underwater. Okay, that definitely requires some serious integration when you come back. So that the shaman is an integral part of this process, an integral part of the healing process. And as a Western scientist, I really can't make sense of a lot of what I see them do. The chanting, the spraying of the aromatic water, the pulling evil out of you during the cleaning session at the end of ayahuasca. I don't know what they're doing, but hey, it works. Okay. So this is why I'm glad to, that our clinicians in London and New York are having increasing access to psilocybin, but I don't think they're replacing the shamans in Oaxaca that have been using this stuff for thousands of years. So that the role of the shaman is indispensable. I think that we need to champion and celebrate and protect and help shamans across the world. And that the juggernaut that is Western industrial culture doesn't just flatten these forests and flatten these shamans. 
because that really is the way of the world. And that's what my organization, the Amazon Conservation Team, is fighting against. Well, uh, Mark, I can say, I'm sure on behalf of everyone who's listening to this podcast, we wish you well and we applaud you for the remarkable efforts you've made over the last 40 years. And uh, live as long as you can, because there's still a lot to do. But <laughs> Well, that's very kind of you to say so. I plan on doing so, and I have a little bit of shamanic help. Good. Yes. Well, I always like to say to uh, when I'm teaching, I always like to show a picture of Hoffman at, when, at 100 and point out he was uh, a regular user, at least of MIDI or microdosing of LSD. The first British psychiatrist to use LSD was in, I think, in 1953, Joe Elkies. And he lived to 100. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the idea that these drugs, you know, the, I don't know, if it, was it the CIA or the FDA put out this idea that uh, LSD fried your brain? I don't think it does. It might even heal your brain, but that's another story. Well, let me wind up by asking about one of my favorite books by a guy named Fuller Torrey called Witch Doctors and Psychiatrists. Are you familiar with it? No, but I know Fuller, yes. He's written so many books, I can't, can't keep up. Well, this is terrific. He, he's a clinical psychologist, and he says that guys like me are all wet, that the real genius of shamans is as psychiatrists. And I, I don't fully agree with him, but it's a, it's a wonderful read. And he had a great quote in there that says, any doctor that tells his patient, that her problem is due to possession by spirits of the ancestors. And any witch doctor who tells his patient that her problems are due to fear of failure in the marketplace are equally likely to be unlikely to be successful. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, he's a good, great guy. I must probably go look on the podcast. That's a good, good thought. Mark, Thanks so much for this conversation. I'm looking very much looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks at the ESPD 55. And just to reiterate to anyone who hasn't signed up, go on the website. You can log in. Everything will be Zoomed. Everything will be recorded. And you're going to be in for a very rich uh, festival of, uh, of knowledge about uh, ethnopharmacology. Well, I too thank you guys. And I look forward to joining forces at ESPD 55 and to continuing the conversation in person and maybe even in a future podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you. Thanks again. <laughs>